Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hey, Ben, it's Jerry. Jerry, it's Ben. Ben, how long have you been following NASCAR? Maybe a lifetime. A lifetime? Well, me too. And that's why it's so fitting that we're both the hosts of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. A Lifetime in NASCAR highlights NASCAR's illustrious history with analysis and anecdotes from a couple of NASCAR, NASCAR historians, namely Ben White, my buddy on the other end of this mic, and myself, Jerry Bunkowski. We're going to discuss with you some contemporary NASCAR topics and everything we've heard through the years. You'll learn about where the sport has been, where it is, and where it's going to go, and the insider scoop on some of the craziest stories you'll ever hear. Okay, Ben, we've got a lot to talk about today, and you know, one of the things that I really like about the format of a lifetime in NASCAR is how you guys always, you know, have in the past have talked about uh, you equate a car number with the episode of the podcast. So this is podcast number 32 of a lifetime in NASCAR. And, you know, the, the number 32 has been driven by a lot of guys. I mean, 1,000 starts exactly in NASCAR Cup history. And I was shocked Ben, when you told me off air about this incredible, incredible stat. And what I want to ask you is, Ben, the number 32 was been, has been driven by such names as Junior Johnson, Tiny Lund, uh, Scott Pruitt, Ricky Craven. But, and there's a big but there, how many times has the number 32 reached victory lane? I'll tell you, Jerry, buckle your seatbelts here. It's a real shocker to me. When I looked it up, uh, I really thought we were going to have a big number here. Actually, not a big number. It's only gone to Victor Lane twice, and it went to Victor Lane none other than Ricky Craven. Actually, the first time he drove it there was October 15th of 2001 at Martinsville Speedway driving a Pontiac for Cal Wells. And you'd think, you know, this this number would would somewhere in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, somewhere the number would show up in victory lane, but it has not. The first time it went to the racetrack, Jim Rathman drove it September 11th, 1949 at Lake uh, Lakehorn Speed, Langhorn Speedway in Pennsylvania. And from that date up until 2001, October 15th, it did not go to Victory Lane. The second time it went to Victory Lane was March 16th, 2003. Uh, and Ricky drove, uh, and everybody remembers this race, Yep, where he led exactly, well, I want to say one lap, not even one lap. Let's call it about 300 yards when he and Kirk Bush got together crossing the start-finish line. Uh, with a lot of smoke and a lot of bent sheet metal there at Darlington in the spring race. And, uh, of course, Ricky came out on top by probably about six inches there. A tremendous win. But, yeah, 108 drivers have wheeled number 32, uh, like you said, a 1,000 races, and it's only been to Victor Lane twice. I was just really shocked by that. I was got I got my ink, the, the pen with a lot of ink in it, man, and I was going to go and – <laughs> really write that down and boy i was ready for 30 minutes of writing it down i was like wow that took no time at all <laughs> <laughs> i really did think that well, was know, uh, that was going to be the case but no two victories is all we got well you know a lot of people accuse me of being a guy who looks at the glass as being half empty so i'm gonna i'm gonna come back to you with that is the 32, and, and this is going to probably be a question you've never been asked. I'm going to, this is going to come totally out of left field, but hey, it's coming from me, so you got to expect this kind of thing. Is the 32 a jinxed number? 
I mean, if it's only been to victory lane twice, and the last time was 18, more than 18 years ago, you know, and it, it, I mean, so many guys have driven it, you know, well-known guys, but the fact that it's only reached victory lane twice, and that was only within a, a well, twice in a three-year period, and hasn't been, you know, before or after since then, um, is 32 a jinx number? I mean, and that is that probably part of the reason why we're not really seeing it out there that often? Tell you what, if I was a team owner somewhere in the 50s and I had a crystal ball or maybe uh, access to the internet and racing reference, I certainly would have tried to look it up. <laughs> uh, it just it doesn't have that aura to it. It doesn't have that uh, feel good, I guess, you know, feeling about it because it just, I don't know, it just didn't, it didn't really, uh, it didn't work. I mean, you know, you go think about uh, 108 drivers tried to win with it and they couldn't and it was magical for ricky craven those two times but you know i've heard many times i don't know if you've heard this too but and and i guess and i've said this on the podcast before but you know aside from richard petty because he really screwed up the stat okay because he got 200 victories with the number 43 but i've heard drivers and team owners say the lower the number the better luck you have with it and that's why a lot of drivers say Earnhardt always wanted a low number, uh, you know, one, two, three, four, anything in the top 10 is what these drivers would strive to have. And like I said, good old Richard, he messed that up. But, you know, what Richard wanted as far as car numbers goes, he told me himself, he said, I wanted number 24 really, really bad. I went to the guy who had 24 in 1957, 58, because Lee had 42, so he said, I wanted to reverse that. And the guy said, heck no, I got 24, and I want 24. And so he said, oh, what the heck, after beating his head against the wall, he said, I'll just take old 43. Well, how prolific that became, because 43 was the winningest team car number in, in NASCAR history. But he wanted 24 super bad, even to the point he said, I even offered him money for it. He said, no, I want 24. So... Back to 32, though, I don't know. It, it just, it didn't, uh, it didn't resonate as a winning number for whatever reason. Somebody uh, in gypsy land, I guess, you know, put a curse on it. <laughs> I don't know. But it, uh, it just never had that aura of being a winning team car number. And good old Ricky, he, he uh, put it in victory lane a couple of times before he retired. And who knows, somebody may come along, some young buck, uh, with a really, you know, like a 13-year-old or 14-year-old face might come along and pick it. And who knows, he might, might make a winner out of it one of these days. Well, let me, let me ask you a question. I mean, you know, you've been around for such a long time, as have I. I mean, I'm not saying we're both old, but I've got to ask you this. Well, we kind of are. <laughs> oh, we kind of are. Okay. That, I like that. We kind of are. I like that. Okay. Um, is there really a lot to make of a car number's... Um, superstitiousness or lack of superstition um because you know like you said i mean so there's the the smaller numbers a lot of guys one of those numbers you know the one two three four five all the way up to about 11 but you know is it more so that there was a you know superstition among drivers over the years you know and one one guy would say well i'm not gonna you know take care of this number or was it just a matter that these cars have raced so many times that you know they they um you know were able to um uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They, they, the the frequency that they were out there led them to more wins. I mean, is there a lot to be said about a superstition, or is that just a bunch of a uh, bunch of baloney, if you will? Um, I'm not sure, Jerry. I do know this. I do know that Joe Weatherly liked the number eight, and he used to say that I love it because if I flip the car, the fan can always see what number I have. That's <laughs> about going to change. So. That's that's true. He used to say that. I do know. I'm not sure about numbers, but I do know that there was some some superstition about, among Joe Weatherly. He didn't like the color green. He didn't like peanuts. I mean, he was serious about it. And I do know at Charlotte one time, David Pearson hitting the 21 Merc for uh, Wood Brothers Mercury was parked beside Elmo Langley's green number 64 Ford, and he demanded that he get moved in the garage but he said i'm not parking beside elmo he said what's the problem he said it's a green car and i'm not going to park beside him and that really got kind of heated because it's like i you just don't understand i'm not going to park beside elmo so there were some drivers that really didn't like 
the superstition of green and peanuts and those types of things. I mean, you know, Joe would get fighting mad if, you know, if you threw a green cloth or something like on him. And now, but that all kind of changed uh, when, you know, Gatorade came into the sport in the, in the late 70s with, you know, Daryl Waltrip, Die Guard, and that, that sort of went away. But as far as the car number itself, I hadn't really heard anything about car numbers being superstitious, but all that started the way I understand it. There was a race, a guy was sitting on his fender back in the 20s, popping peanuts. He was in a green car. I'm going to go out and win the race. And then he didn't come back. Okay, that's kind of how that come about. This is long before NASCAR was ever formed. Right. And this was like 1920, 25, somewhere in that era. That's what I've always been told. And that that sort of resonated with all the other drivers. So as far as to answer your question, as far as the car number, I've never really heard of it. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, it could have happened somewhere on a, on a short track somewhere and, and maybe on a local level. Not Never heard of it in the Cup Series. Right, exactly. We might have to, uh, well, I know he's not with us any longer, but maybe we could do a, a research of Paul Harvey and, you know, the rest of the story. Maybe he has a, one of those episodes about car numbers and that kind of thing. But, you know, speaking of numbers, you know, we're going into race number five of the uh, 2021 NASCAR Cup playoffs. And this is the one, I mean, they always say it's the number one race It's of the playoffs because it's the most unpredictable. It's the most, it's the biggest wild card. You always hear that word wild card. And of course, we're talking about this weekend's race in Talladega Super Speedway. You know, Ben, this track has had such a history and I, I want to delve back into the history in a moment, but I want to focus in a little bit more on today, you know, this weekend's race. You've got guys coming in that, you know, so many have had struggles at Talladega, but then you have a guy like Brad Keselowski, who's won six races there. He's the winningest active driver at that track. And right behind him, which kind of surprised me when I saw this stat, Joey Logano is the second winningest active driver at Talladega with three wins. What is it about Team Penske that they've been able to win at that place nine different times? I mean, it, it almost uh, kind of flies in the face of, the exact opposite because you know it, it's it's an, a race of attrition it's a race of luck it's a race of bad luck sometimes too so what is it that team penske has been able to do to be so successful i mean they're kind of like you know dale earnhardt we'll talk about him in momentarily as well his success there as well as his son dale earnhardt jr he had a lot of success at talladega he won six times as well there too but what is it about team penske that they have found i guess the the recipe if you will yeah, Jerry, I think it's two things. I think, you know, we were just talking about luck, and I think that it plays heavily when drivers and teams go to Talladega. And I think the other part of that is uh, maybe it's a three, three-prong answer. Maybe it's a little bit of common sense, and it's a little bit of, of just comfort, if you will. When I say those three things, I, I mean it this way. First of all, when you go to Talladega, you might as well put 40 ping pong balls in a hat, okay? Really, you should, because there's no way, you know, when you're trying to do some type of, uh, you know, pick the winner, there's really no way to do it because there are so many factors when you go to Talladega. It's always been that way from September 22nd, 1969, when they threw the first green flag there. The reason being, it's such a big racetrack, 2.66 miles. Everybody's pretty close now it always kind of has been, but because you've always had packs of cars, one slip of the steering wheel, one slip of, you know, the, a, a blown tire, a turn the wrong direction, and you're taking out 15, 20 cars. And so a little, maybe a little bit more so than Daytona, because the track's slightly bigger than Daytona. At 2.5 miles for Daytona, 2.6 miles for Talladega and that does make a difference mm -hmm. but as far as the Penske cars I think they sort of go into it with the mentality of sort of like reading a book you can't you can cheat and, and just say all right I'm gonna read the first page and the last page right? <laughs> you can't really do that to get the whole flavor of what's going on so in the case of Joey and Brad maybe they know that at the end of the day in order to win this thing I have got to tough it out be smart get to the get to the end of the race and i'm going to hopefully win the race okay so 
You can't burn up your tires. You can't win the thing in the first 25 or 30 laps. So they're smart to do that. Now, I know everybody's smart to do that, but I think, let me go back to the first word I said, luck really plays a, a strong factor at Talladega because you got to be at the right place at the right time. At times on super speedways, you've seen teammates drop back, waiting for this big one to happen. And maybe they play that strategy some, but I mean, Talladega is so unpredictable and that is such a factor when they go down there. And so, so do you go to the front and get out of the way or do you go to the back and get out of the way? <laughs> do you, you know, what do you do? I mean, there, there's so many factors for the cars, the drivers, strategies, survival is another word uh, as far as your car goes. Can you get through all the melee and all the all that could happen at 188 laps i mean you know how it is you've been there a bazillion times like i have right. you just kind of hold your breath and hope for the best a lot of times exactly well you know the one thing that i find um interesting about this sunday's race in particular <clears throat> you know you look at the eight guys that are above the cut line okay no real big surprises there below the cut line We've got the two of the four Hendrick drivers. We've got Alex Bowman and William Byron. We have uh, Christopher Bell and Kevin Harvick. Now, I was doing some analysis yesterday about this. And if particularly Bowman and Byron have poor races at Talladega, and you know, I've looked at their, their records that they're not, they're not stellar. Of course, a lot of guys' records are not stellar at Talladega. But their season or their playoff essentially could be over if they have a really bad run at Talladega. If they finish, you know, let's say 25th or lower, they, the only way they could probably get back into it and advance to the third round is to win at next week at, Char at the uh, Roval at Charlotte. But, you know, it's, 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 it's going to be interesting to see what those two guys do. Bell is essentially in a in a must win situation, so it'll be interesting to see what he does. And then we go back to Harvick, and I you know, I know I've been kind of riding the Harvick train the last few weeks in in you know things I've written and you know said on the podcast as well, but it still befuddles me how a guy who led the series last year with nine wins does not have one win yet this year. Could Talladega because it's so crazy because it's so unpredictable because it's such a wild card does kevin harvick want to finally get breaking through with a win this sunday because i mean the one thing if i'm kevin harvick and i, and I think you can probably make this case to to a number of other drivers especially like a byron or um a bell or a um or a um, um a byron bell or um a bowman the three b's as i like to call them um you know strategy standpoint I would actually start near, you know, I would, I'd, you know, if you start up high, I'd fall back, you know, let the race come to you rather than you come to the race, you know, early on, because, you know, it's almost inevitable within the first 50 to hundred laps, you're going to have at least a couple of big ones. So is it better to stay back? Or like you said, get out in front and just say goodbye to everybody, which is not going to happen because you've got so many different pit stops. So Kevin Harvick in particular, what do you think his strategy is going to be? I mean, can he win this race? And would it be, kind of fitting that he wins because he hasn't won up to this point. Yeah, I think in Kevin's case, he's to the point now with so few races left and so many frustrations in 2021, the name of his strategy is what the heck. <laughs> because it's like, why, why do anything, you know, why look at the big whiteboard in the, in the, in the strategy room? Why we've tried everything else. I've been to Talladega so many times. He's got some wins there. And he's like, let's just go out there and see what happens. I think, I personally think that's what he's going to do. As far as Bowman and Byron and Bell, the three B's as you call them, you know, when you go to Thanksgiving and you have a really good time at Thanksgiving and you watch the football and you, you really don't finish the turkey. Well, here's where I'm at. When we answer our questions on Out of the Groove, and I said at Bristol, turn off the lights, the party's over for them. The crow that I ate after Bristol <laughs> is still in the fridge and I'm still eating crow. <laughs> Pass the salt, okay? Because it's kind of like that, you know, where the turkey is still being nibbled on. Because I really did think Byron 
and Bowman were not going to come out of Bristol. And they did. They just really showed me what I don't know. Okay. <laughs> so, so I'm not going to say they're not going to do well at Talladega, but position, 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 kind of like if you're a real estate agent, location, location, location. Right. That's what they're going to have to have at Talladega. And they got to all have a rabbit's foot in their pockets. Okay. Because Talladega is so unpredictable and they need to be where they need to be towards the front, making a good splash. And in Christopher Bell's case, yeah, he needs to win, but he knows how hard that's going to be at Talladega. It's track position every time they are every lap and they're going to have great pit stops. It's just so, I can't say it enough. It's so unpredictable when you go to Talladega. And so if someone, if we get those questions again this week and they ask me, how are they going to do at Talladega? I'm not sure what I'm going to say. Like I said, I'm, I'm down to the, to the small bones on the crow. And I was wrong at Bristol. I really was. I just, I was, I'm still high. I'm still wearing that hat so I can put my hat down. I, w I really didn't think they were going to win at Bristol. I, I mean, I do well at Bristol. I thought they were going to just be done at Bristol. Right. So I'm not sure. I'd like to see them do well, but gosh, if you looked at a, a racetrack that is so unpredictable, it's got to be Talladega. Exactly. You know, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm not going to mention his name uh, to, to uh, protect the, Innocent or the guilty, depending on how you look at it, but a very well-known um, cup driver recent of recent uh, time. He's not racing any longer, but within the last six, seven years, he was in, in, in there. Um, he told me one time, and I asked him about Talladega, and he said his mindset is real simple. Get there and get the bleep out as soon as possible. <laughs> And, you know, it kind of stunned me when he said that, but it, it, I think a lot of drivers, you know, think that. And that's what I think that makes this race even more challenging, because if this race was, let's say, in the middle of July, I mean, God help us with all the heat that would be down there. But, you know, if this was not in the playoffs, it'd be a totally different race than what we see in the playoffs. And I think that, you know, when you talk about the top 10, well, I mean, the, the 10 races in the playoffs, what are the top races in those 10? To me, Talladega is typically one or two. You know, I mean, you could probably say that, you know, the, the final race at Phoenix might be the, the number one race. But I think a lot of people would also say Talladega because it, it in addition to being the wild card, it it's, has so much impact, not only on round two, how it's going to play off, but play out, but also on round three, who's going to be there. I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, Jerry, my question is this, I wonder, and I never really had the chance to ask Bill Sr. or Bill Jr. this question, but I wonder when they designed the track in 1969, did they foresee the future of the track being the, you know, the cars door handle to door handle inches apart, packs of 20 and 25 cars when they when they did that i mean they sure they wanted super speedway racing but back in the 60s when they did daytona that way they you know they had small packs of cars they had five six seven in a pack but I, they didn't have these 20 10 15 20 car packs all day long lap after lap like this is what it's developed into and i just you know if you could go back and ask the question did you envision it this way I just think it's sort of developed over the past 50 years uh, that and to to be this way in the 80s and 90s and 2000s. I just think it's really interesting what's happened with the engines and the aerodynamics and the engineers. And but in the beginning days of when the track when Talladega opened in '69, it really wasn't that way. You had four or five cars in the lead, and then you had the second group of cars that raced among each other and then you had the third group that raced among each other i'm sure they hoped it would be that way right. but they did I, I would answer my own question and say i don't think they envisioned it but wow look at where we are now where i mean can you imagine you and i i've taken some i've done some driving schools and such but i mean think about this what amazes me about these drivers is and at pre-race they're they're hanging out with their families and they're smiling with their kids and they're joking among themselves and they're having a nice day they maybe just had a nice picnic lunch and i just want to walk up to one of them and, and shake them and say do you know what's about to happen <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know you're going to go 200 miles an hour inches apart 
and a pack of 25 cars for the next four hours. Does that register with you at all? I mean, they just seem so at ease about it. Maybe they flip a switch. You know, the old Chevy commercial where the, you know, where they, the monster comes out after they get in the car. Remember those? <laughs> right, right, right. Maybe that happens. I don't know. But they just are so calm about it. And I just think I would, you know, now Buddy Baker, let's go back to Buddy Baker. Now, he, he would smoke cigarettes and he'd walk about 50 paces and walk back. 50 paces and walk back. He could probably dig a ditch with his feet. Okay, he was that way. He was so nervous before he got in a race car. But once he got in the race car, he, you know, he would wear out the floorboard underneath the gas pedal. Okay, that's all he knew how to do. But I mean, I'm just thinking of myself, every time I see that, it just amazes me how they are so calm about getting in this thing, knowing they're going to drop a green flag and 30, 25 cars packs are just going to do, it just amazes me how they do that. So well, that's you know, why they're the best, you know? Well, you know, the thing that, you know, and I agree with you, I mean, I, it amazes me, but the thing that, that has always been, I guess, right at the top of my list about Talladega is the most minute change that, you know, even if you just crack your wheel an inch or two, you can be, that is the difference between going forward and calamity. I mean, the the margin for uh, error is so small. I mean, you know, uh, somebody once told me that, you know, it, it's the length of somebody's, you know, one strand of hair on the person's head. That's the, the margin of, of error that you can have. And like you said, I mean, the guys can, when when they're racing so close together, there is an inherent trust, I think, among all drivers, maybe there might be maybe not as much trust like with, with a young guy coming in who was maybe this is only his first or second time at Talladega, whatever, what have you. But the guys who've been there, who've been in the wars for, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 sometimes uh, races there, there's an inherent trust there. But sooner or later, somebody is going to make a mistake. And when that happens, all heck is going to break loose. Um, I, I'll remember, I remember this very clearly. I was at Talladega. I want to say it was either 2007 or 2008. It was one of the fall races. And we were, t- you know, we, we were in the media center. We were talking amongst ourselves and I mentioned a certain driver's name and I'm not going to mention his name, but I said, you know, you may want to keep an eye on him. I just have a funny feeling he's going to, he's going to create something. He's going to cause something. Literally those words had not come out of my mouth or had, had just come out of my mouth rather. And he cricked, you know, he cricked the wheel just a little bit, boom, 20 car pile up. And I eventually got to talk to him later. And he said, yeah, he says, I admit it was my mistake. He says, I overcompensated just a little bit. And I thought I'd catch it, you know, and it was only a matter of inches and boom, the you know, next thing you know, we have cars flying everywhere. So I, I think, you know, Ben, in, in, in talking about this Sunday, <clears throat> we're, it's going to be more of the same. But the one thing I've noticed in Talladega over the last, probably the last decade is that there are certain races where you're going to have three, maybe even four big ones. And then there's races you only maybe have one or two. You know, I mean, it's 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 almost an uh, inevitable thing we're going to have at least one big one. But, you know, sometimes there just aren't that many. But, you know, when, you know, looking at the race this Sunday, who do you think has the best chance of doing well? I mean, in fact, I won't even put you on the spot. Give me your, your top three to five guys you think will have the best chance Sunday. Got to go immediately with Keselowski because he just seems to have that magic, the same magic, I think, that Dale Jr. had, that Dale Earnhardt Sr. had. You know, you got drivers that just, they feel comfortable there. They feel at home there. I think Keselowski will have a good run. We, we said something about Joey Logano. I think he will. And for some reason, I'm feeling it for, for Kevin Harvick, too. I just, like I said before, you get to these places in your season where you're so incredibly frustrated with how things have gone. It's not really your fault. It's just that what you, you reach a point where what else, you know, you look back at Bristol and what happened there. And, you know, I won't say a driver ever has it in the bag. Not anymore. There were times when they did, um, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, I'm sorry, I laughed there, but I thought about a story at Texas World Speedway one time where Buddy Baker was leading the race by, you know, he was in a different time zone. He was so far ahead. And the crew 
put up the old pit board, the old chalkboard and said something like, take it easy or you have it one or something to the effect. And he looked over to see what it said on the board and he ran into the back of another car. <laughs> <laughs> so those days are long gone. Right. And he didn't win the race. Um, so yeah, Harvick would love to have a day like that. Uh, I think I think he'll be in the mix. Sorry, fans, but I got to say, Kyle Larson, magical Kyle Larson. He he seems to can't <laughs> on the opposite end of Kyle. I mean, uh, Kevin Harvick, he can't seem to do anything wrong. Right. It's, he's even amazed at how good things are going. Uh, that's three. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to say. I think I think Chase Elliott's going to do well. He's got that Bill Elliott magical Talladega touch there. Right. Like 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 Elliot did, and then you know if I came up with one more, uh, gosh, it's it's gosh it's hard to say. Maybe oh man, you know I got a I got I'm a Cinderella guy, so let's throw Austin Dillon in there. I mean he's he's not worried about the championship hunt anymore. He's a good super speedway racer. He's done well at Talladega in the past. He's done well at Daytona in the past. But you know let's go back to what we were talking about. 40 guys, great cars, pretty equal. It's hard to say. Really so. hard to say. Right. Might right. see a might see a Cinderella Victor come out of that thing on Sunday. I'm I'm a big fan of those types of, of things because it's great for the fans, it's great for the sport, but it's a lot of fun to write too. Well, I mean, I, I agree with you on the, the names you mentioned. I'll I'll throw two other well, actually three other names at you as well. Um, and I'm not going to pick the top three or top five. I mean, these I think these guys are definitely going to be in the top ten mix. But you know, I, I like Kyle Busch. I think that he uh, is a good guy that you know has a good chance of doing something there. And then you know, you look at a guy like Martin Truex Jr. I, to me, I, I don't know what it is. I mean, here you know, here's a guy who's a former champion. He just to me, he just doesn't get the respect he you know he's earned. And I think that he would do very well. But here's my Cinderella. You mentioned Austin Dillon is your Cinderella. I'm going to go back to February of this year and Michael McDowell winning the Daytona 500. I mean, he's got nothing to lose on this race, just like he had nothing to lose going into Daytona. Um, yes, he's not, you know, he didn't make it out of the first round, but what better way to essentially bookend his season by winning at the two biggest tracks, you know, on the circuit. So, and he does typically pretty well on, on um, super speedway racing. So I'm not going to be surprised to see him, you know, put that car into victory lane as well, too. So we got a lot lot of possibilities. I mean, you could probably write 40 different stories of the 40 different guys that are going to be in this race or however, whatever, 38 cars, whatever it's going to be in the, in the race. But let's go back to Talladega past history. You know, this is such a storied racetrack. And a lot of people, I don't really seem to, uh, to me, don't see, I, it doesn't seem to register to me that a lot of these people don't realize that Talladega is old but it's not old and what i mean by that is okay it was it opened up in 69 okay so that's 52 years or, or so whatever it is um but it doesn't it doesn't race like a track that's old it races like a you know almost a, a brand new track or at least a track maybe is only 10 years old but you know it's had such a history of you know great drivers great wins you know you, you mentioned about keselowski and logano well that's modern day but we also have Dale Earnhardt Sr., he won, what was it, uh, 15 times or, or 11 times, whatever it was, uh, 12 times. You know, he was definitely the king over there. Um, you, you know, Daryl uh, you know, Waltrip did pretty well there. I mean, you know, there's so many guys that did well at Talladega. They figured it out. Um, you know, tell me, uh, tell me some of your better stories about Talladega from back in the day. Yeah, well, one comes, that's actually two that come to mind. Uh, September 22nd of 69 was the first time that they ran there. And the problem immediately came about that the tires, the, the, the car, the cars were going so fast, the tires simply couldn't keep up with the speeds. This, this was immediate when they, the cars were unloaded. It's, it's kind of a, I'll try to make it a nutshell story here, but what happened was they had already formed something called the Professional Drivers Association. Mm -hmm. Tried to be very careful not for this to be a unionized uh, situation because Curtis Turner had already been banned for life in the mid-60s for trying to bring the Teamsters into NASCAR. And that was an absolute no-no to, to Bill France Sr. And uh, even though Fra uh, this was early 60s and, and Curtis Turner was reinstated into NASCAR in 65, 
because quite frankly, the ticket sales weren't as where France wanted them to be. And he needed Car Curtis Vernon to help bring that back. And he comes back a race or two and he ends up winning at North Carolina Motor Speedway. Uh, so, but back to Talladega, Richard Petty was the president of this organization. And uh, as, as this would have it, Firestone came in, tried to put some tires on the track. They couldn't make it work. And they pulled out. Uh, th this was a very heated situation because France wanted them to race anyway. And they're like, no, not no, but hell no. We're not going to do that because we're putting our lives on the line. And so as the story goes, by Saturday afternoon of this weekend, the top drivers, many of the, many of the drivers packed up and left. Uh, France, uh, as it turned out, put the Grand American cars with the guys who wanted to stay, namely Bobby Isaac, a guy named Richard Brickhouse, who ended up winning the race, uh, Jim Vandiver, who finished uh, second to Brickhouse. And there was some controversy there because Vandiver, to his dying day, said he won the race. And because Dodge was trying to spotlight their new car ended up there was some controversy about you know they put him a lap ahead or something and uh, made him the winner it was just one of those debacle type races uh, one of the things the positives I guess that came out of which there weren't many positives to this day uh, Richard Childress was one of those grand American drivers driving right. a number 13 green Camaro and he ended up using the money to build his first race shop in Winston-Salem. And as it turned out, that was the beginning of RCR Enterprises, who, and as time would go on, he wins six championships with Richard, uh, with Dale Earnhardt. So, I mean, it's, it's an interesting story. It's something we could spend probably three podcasts on to get it right. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, that was a, a debacle that but they were very careful not to call this a union because they didn't want uh, these drivers to be banned from NASCAR. At the end of the day, Leroy Yarborough ended up decking Bill France Sr. with a punch. And that's when everybody said, we're done. And a, a few weeks after that, the PDA was dismantled. Everybody hugged and kissed and it was all sort of forgotten. Richard Brickhouse's career never took off after that. Jim Vandiver the next week got spun out at the next race at Greenville Pickens, I believe where it was, uh, by one of the union or, excuse me, PDA guys. <laughs> uh, I won't call him a union guy. And <laughs> so it's it, sort of a heated situation. The tires got better the next race. Everybody lived to tell about it. Right. The second story I want to tell you about, still in my opinion, has to be one of the most bizarre, strange, craziest Talladega races on record. August 12th, 1973, there's a lot to this one, where uh, a guy, Dick Brooks, who was the, the guy, the second, I guess the guy who drove number 32, we talked about before, didn't win in 32, but he had 78 starts. This particular day, he was driving a Plymouth number 22 owned by an eastern airlines pilot who bought a car and was determined without any practice at all he was going to drive in the talent in this talladega 500. <laughs> Ascar said uh no no we're going to put a driver in the car that has experience he starts 24th he had a collision on pit road he fell down two laps down twice somehow made up the laps he had heat exhaustion once in the race Jeez. ends up winning the race okay so it was just one of those strange how in the world did you win stories but part of the story uh was bobby isaac he was a well-known 1970 champion was in this race three years later of course driving for bud moore who was a prominent team owner lap 92 he comes down pit road looks through the wind screen net and tells bud moore i quit he's leading the race he just said i've decided to quit driving he's like you're what you're leading the race what what's wrong nothing i just decided I, my career is over i quit huh. now let's put it in today's 
perspective. Let's say that Kevin Harvick driving for ha Stuart Haas is leading the race at lap 108. And it comes down pit road, looks at Rodney Childers and says, I quit. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? So, so the story from various reporters said, quote, Bobby Isaac heard voices in the car. Well, that was a little bit uh, construed to make the story a little more adventurous. He really didn't hear voices, but he said, quote, something told me to stop racing and I quit. And his quote was something to the effect of, I know what it's like to win. I know what it's like to lose. I know what it's like to win a championship. And now I know what it feels like to quit. And so out of the clear blue sky, he just pulls the car in the pits, crawls out of this number 15 forward and just walks away. And Bud Morris standing there with his hands out, like, what the heck? Why, <laughs> what's going on? So, so Cuckoo Marlin, who is Clifton Cuckoo Marlin, who is Sterling Marlin's dad, was driving his own car. He had fallen out with engine issues sitting on a bench in the garage area. So one of the Bud Moore's crew guys says, hey, Bud Moore needs you to drive his car. He's like, okay, he grabs his helmet, runs in, gets in the car, finishes 13th. Bobby Isaac did uh, come back in 1974 and ran more races for Haas Ellington and a couple other guys never did really win again or get in a real prominent ride. I guess Haas's car, was a prominent car, but he never did really come back from all of that. But he just decided to stop, which is very, very bizarre for a winning champion to just stop. I just, you know, I've been thinking about this before the podcast is like, okay, if you could just put that, say Martin Truex just goes to Joe Gibbs and said, hey, I just, I just decided to quit. I mean, it's just, it's so bizarre. In a and race, too, on top of all, in, in a big race, in, right. in, a, in a Talladega 500, he just stopped the car and got out and, and walked away. David Pearson said a day or two later, who was a very close friend of Bobby Isaac, he said, hey, you know, that's my friend, Bobby Isaac. And he's always been known to me that when he decides to do something, he just does it, you know? And he's, he didn't think about it. He just does it. It wasn't surprising to David. But, you know, people tried to equate that to, you know, I heard voices and I was scared and I stepped out of the car. Not at all the truth. It wasn't. He just decided, hey, you know what? This is not fun anymore. I'm just going to quit. That's right. really the true story. Right. The second part of this, the third, I guess the third part of this story. We're going for the trifecta here. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm going for that. The, the sad part of this entire story was the loss of Larry Smith, who was the 1972 Rookie of the Year. He had a large sponsorship from Carling Beer. He fielded his own car, number 92, as a, as a Mercury uh, Cyclone, uh, very much like the car Pearson drove, except it, that was for the Wood Brothers, but a nicely done car. He crashed on the 14th lap. The he was on an inner liner, so he had popped a tire and he was trying to continue on as long as he could, hoping for a caution, I guess. The, now, this is the bizarre part of the story. For years and years and years, people thought, now, now don't, this is weird, okay? People thought that he had taken the padding out of his helmet so he wouldn't mess up his hair. <laughs> this, was, this was the story that had been going on, I mean, legitimate story that is not the case okay what happened was he was using a new restraint system in the car and when he hit the wall at you know and and went up into turn one and hit the wall the restraint system did not hold and it broke at the headrest where it was mounted mm -hmm, mm -hmm. sadly he hit the dashboard and had the same type of injury dale earnhardt had in 2001 at daytona but the, the crazy, you're like, where in the world did that come from? But he was killed instantly in the crash. And it, you just, I mean, it was just one of those bizarre, crazy Sundays that you're like, where in the world did this kind of this stuff start to develop? 
And yeah, it's laughable to think that the guy would get in a race car, take the padding out so he wouldn't mess up his hair. Really? <laughs> where in the world? I'd like, to, yeah, I'd like to know where that story came from. Right, exactly. How You can't make this stuff up. It, the whole day, the whole day was so bizarre, crazy. But Talladega had a reputation for years of things that were just craziness. I mean, you know, prominent people in the sport had lost their lives there over crazy accidental things. And people tried to equate this to the Indian reservation it was built on and stuff. It's like, no, 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 that, that's, that's not true. It's just, anyway, those are some stories that circulated for years that I don't think, I wouldn't put any, you know, anything to that. But that, that particular 1973 race was, goes down in history as the craziest. Wow. But wow. Can you imagine, Bobby Isaac, just, could you imagine, again, final, a prominent driver of today, a Chase Elliott pulling in and telling Rick Hendrick, you know what? I just don't want to do this anymore. I quit. And there's no rhyme, no reason to it. He just got out of the car and walked away and went back to Dawsonville. It's just too strange. Yeah, I'm curious. You know, this is such a fantastic story. What did Bud Moore say about it years later? I mean, because he was the man that, that it happened to. I'll be honest with you. I've talked to a couple of prominent writers who were with some major publications asking that same question. And I think Bud was so shocked by it. I don't think he really offered any explanation to it. I mean, he was so, I think he was not only shocked, but I think he was really hurt by it because he had built his entire race team around Bobby, mm -hmm. had faith in him to drive the car. And you know, that's another one of those things, like I said, I'd love to have been able to talk to Bill Sr. and Bill Jr. about Talladega I'd love to have had the chance and I should have I should have just said could you tell me about it and maybe he didn't want to talk about it but you know it's it's almost one of those things that's so bizarre you're like really I mean yeah. you know you just can't put your mind around something like that you work so hard to get to a prominent place in your career and then you just say you know what I'm done <laughs> it's hard to put your mind in around and Granted, now back then, you know, these drivers weren't making the multi-million dollar dollars that they were today. And, right. you know, it, it was far different than what it is today. But still, to have a prominent ride in, in NASCAR's what was the Winston Cup Series, I don't know. It just, I don't know. And, and some people thought Bobby was kind of strange at times. And sadly, we lost Bobby in 1977, and he was driving a car at Hickory Motor Speedway, suffered a heart attack or heat exhaustion, and then later that night, I think, suffered a heart attack. But, you know, ironically, the car he was driving at Hickory Motor Speedway was owned by Andy Petrie and Dale Jarrett. I did not know that. Wow. Wow. I don't know. I don't, I said, I apologize. I don't know what came first. If it was the heart attack that he suffered in the car and then died of heat exhaustion or vice versa. But yeah, he was, he still raced and he still wanted to race. And I know he had second thoughts about getting out of that car that day, but did he hear voices? Did something tell him I've got to get out before I get hurt? He swore that wasn't the case, but something told him it was time. So right. who knows? It'll be, it'll remain a mystery. Who knows? We know with your telling that story, the first thing that popped in my mind, and you know, I'm trying to put a modern context on a, you know, a situation like that, not the same exact context, but there is some similarity, is when Carl, uh, Carl Edwards said to Joe Gibbs one day, that's it, I quit. You know, I mean, he wasn't in the race car, wasn't in the middle of a race, but I think Carl stunned everybody, including Joe Gibbs, because you didn't see that coming at all. And you know, here it's been, what, five, six years now, Carl has not come back. I think a lot of people thought he would. And, you know, you can try, kind of draw some similarities between what happened with Bobby Isaac. But, of course, like you, said, like you said, it was in the course of a race, whereas Carl essentially, you know, the end of the season said, I'm not coming back. And it caught everybody by surprise. That's an excellent point, Jerry. I had not put that together, but you're exactly right. And he did say during the press conference Carl did that day. I've, I've done what I want to do. I've made the money I want to make. It's time to do that. But I think questions still linger about, you know, why would you, you're on top of your game, you're a championship winning 
contender, you're in the top, one of the top rides, and suddenly you just wake up and say it's over. I, I think people would like to know, and he's not really offered any more. And it, maybe we're not privy to why, really. Maybe it's his business as to why, and I respect that. But right. yeah, you're right. I mean, I hadn't really put that together. That's an excellent point. I, you know, it's a different era, different time, but yeah. And from talking to, you know, some of his friends and, uh, you know, he's very happy doing, not doing it, I guess, but exactly. maybe he didn't just didn't really like the direction, you know, uh, that we were going in. And I, I, I go back to something Davey Allison said to me in the early nineties and I asked him about the good old days. And he said, buddy, these are the good old days. That's right. <laughs> exactly. That's right. <laughs> you know, we were at Rockingham and he said, he said, Ben or buddy, Ben, these are the good old days. And these are the good old days. And I was like, okay, maybe you do something. I don't know. But I mean, yeah. he was just very happy with where he was. And I don't know. It's, but, you know, Carl is, is in, in his defense, he's, uh, he's privy to uh, what he feels. And he felt like maybe it was time to step away. And he did it. And God bless him. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there's some of us that like to just kick back with a soft drink and Say like, okay, what's the deal? <laughs> well, exactly. You know, and the thing about Carl is, it's actually kind of a two-part thing. One was the actual departure and the way it happened, but I think the other part, there are still a lot of fans out there that still think Carl's going to come back into a race car. I mean, with each passing year, it's not going to happen. But you know, I would have thought, you know, and remember, Carl, you know, he started racing really, really young, uh, you know, in in Missouri and in, in that area. Um, I, at the very least, I mean, there was talk about maybe him one day going to IndyCar or maybe he would come back to NASCAR or even just, you know, uh, you know, go play around in some of grassroots tracks like he used to. And he's, he's to just walk away so cold. And I don't mean cold in a bad way. I mean, just the fact that it was so abrupt, that's probably a better way of phrasing it. Uh, he walked away so abruptly and, to, to know that racing was such an important part of his life, more than half of his life at that point, and he's never come back. That's that's what blows my mind. Well, you know, Jerry, looking back, another example I just thought of as you were talking there, you know, look at Cale Yarbrough. He was getting ready to sign a multi-year major deal in, at the end of 1980, and he was at home, and his, his daughter and a couple of her friends were kind of moping around and said, what's the deal? And he said, they said, well, my bike is broken and you're not home to fix it. He said, well, how long has it been broken? He's like six months or something. <laughs> it's like it's been broke forever. And it kind of really, you know, he was like getting ready to go on an airplane and sign a major deal with somebody. And he was going to be, you know, another three years of 29 races a year. And it just kind of bothered him. It's like, well, you promised, you promised, you promised, you promised to fix this thing. And he finally, he called the guy and said, this is not going to work. And I've been around away from my family too long. And maybe that's what Carl was feeling, you know, another 36 races a year. And I'm not around my family, even though today we've got motorhomes and jets and they can move from place to place way better than what they could in 80 or 81. But still, Kale's like, you know what? You're right. I've been away from my family way too long. And that's when he went to uh, to a limited schedule and then finally retired in 88. But you know, you got to, even for writers, even for us, I mean, when you're, you know, I, at one time in my career, we were doing 36 races and I'm doing 32 of them. And it got to the point where I would put down one suitcase and grab the other one. Yep. yep. And fortunately, my wife and son could go with me in the summer to some of these races. And when, you know, but it got to a point where, you know, am I happy? You know, and I finally cut back on where now I'm doing maybe 17 or 18 and my son is 30 now. And helping to build engines for Richard Childress at RCR. But I mean, there was a time when we had to sit down and say, am I having fun? So, and that, they got it way more than I do doing autographs. And after the track, they're, they're doing this appearance, that appearance, right. and just running like crazy with PR folks. So I understand to a degree, and I'm sure you do too, where you're just on the run all the time and, and you're seeing your family grow up from a distance or on the phone. And so you, you got to sort of balance that. So in Carl's case, maybe he woke up one day and said, you know what, this is not fun anymore. And maybe Bobby said the same thing. It's just like, I'm on the run all the time. Next week, I'm living out of a suitcase. Listen, when you go to a, when you go to a, a residence inn and, and the wallpaper looks the same as it did last week, 
<laughs> you can relate, right? Right. You're like, where am I? And when you get on, when you sit on the edge of the bed and you say, where am I? That it's time to go home. It's time to take a break. Well, you know, I was, I, I think I was in either, was it Richmond or Phoenix? It was one of the two. I woke up one night and I had gone to bed with a really bad headache. I mean, you know, and, and um, I took a couple of aspirin and I woke up in the middle of the night. I couldn't figure out where the heck I was at. So I called down the front desk. And I said, I know it's going to sound crazy. You've probably never been asked this before. I said, what city am I in? And, you know, the, the front desk person said, oh, we get that all the time. And, and she told me. And I can so relate to what you're saying because, like, when I was with Yahoo back from 2004 to 2008, um, I averaged 220 days a year on the road. And I loved what I was doing. Best job I think I've ever had. But it definitely did. And I certainly can relate to what Carl Edwards, uh, what made him decide to quit because, you know, you can only qualify and quantify being on the road so much when you're on the road for 220 days a year and I'm not even a driver, I'm just a reporter. And I was only doing like you, I was doing 32 weekends a, a year or, or thereabouts. But then there was also, you know, there was um, uh, the preseason, the media tour in Charlotte. And, you know, there was the, you know, going to Daytona two or three weeks earlier before speed weeks. I mean, there's just, it was, you know, it was like you said, you drop one suitcase and take off with another. And I would quantify or qualify it. And I, maybe I was being, stubborn maybe i was being selfish by saying this but i always felt i was doing it for the family i felt i was doing it for the points you know the the hotel points the frequent flyer points and you know yeah the points did give us a lot of great vacations you know and and you know uh for my wife and bringing the kids as well but today i look back and i'm and it's like why why did i do so much i mean but it came with the territory the job required you to do that so but you know, I we're mean, not, we're not young like we were either. I mean, I, I don't I mean, please understand to those listening. We're not trying to complain about it. We've had a, a you and I both have had an incredible opportunity to do what we do. And we're yeah. very blessed to do it. But at the same time, we relate to these guys. We don't have motorhomes and jets like these guys. Yep. do, And yep. it's just a lot of it's a lot of road time. And it, you have to ask yourself at some point, I love what I do, but it's time to cut back. It's yeah. time to, to enjoy. Now, in my case, I have a grandson I love dearly, and it's just time to not do 36 anymore or 32 yeah. anymore. I'm very happy not doing, hopping from, from airplane to airplane. I'm very happy not doing that. I love, I love my 16, and I drive to every race now, and I love that. I'm very happy. And I work from home a lot, you know, because of COVID and things we've done, we've adapted to some of that. So, hey, it's it's a great, great, and I have many, many wonderful experiences, wonderful memories, and, and you know, you do too. So it's been, been fun. Very, very blessed to do it. Exactly. Now, before we wrap up today's show, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about Dale Earnhardt and Talladega. I mean, you know, the 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 legend, the legacy, the success there. And then his last career win before his you know, tragic passing a few months later was at Talladega as well in 2000. And, you know, that, that, you know you, people used to call like Charlotte Motor Speedway, they would say it's the house that Jimmy Johnson built. Well, Talladega was the house that Dale Earnhardt built to, to a lot of people. What's, what's your biggest or most fondest memory of senior and Talladega, you know, be it on the track, off the track. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I heard so many stories. Um, you know, I only saw him a few times at Talladega in person. The majority of the time, you know, it was a majority of the time. My, my, the majority of my time in NASCAR was after his his sad passing. But um, what's what's your kind of like your favorite Earnhardt slash Talladega story? Without question, without doubt, October 15, two thousand. He that was his last victory there. Uh, in the last uh, 10 laps, some say five, but it really, he really poured it out in the last five. He came from 18th to first in five laps. I mean, it's like an incredible talent to be able to do that with the help of Kenny Wallace helping get him there. But I mean, I was there to see it from the press box and absolutely amazing to watch him do what he did. He knew what he had to do. I mean, being able to maneuver through traffic that day to get to the front and win not only the race but a, an extra cool million bucks from Winston. I right. mean, good lord, it, it was it was an amazing amazing talent to win 
to do that and then get your final victory. And he really thought he'd be back. And, you know, many of us in the media that day were saying, well, how do you top that? I mean, goodness, he was, it was, I, I used the word amazing. I know said it, but goodness, it was just, how do you do, if you have a chance to go back and watch that race on the internet, it's, right. it's by far your something worth your 15 or 20 minutes to see. You know, I know the ESPN announcers, Jerry Punch, Benny Parsons, Ned Jarrett were like, their mouth dropped watching him do this and it was just like he knew where to go what go high go low he could see it all develop and he even said he thought it was the most perfect race he had ever driven and he was looking forward to coming back and sadly for some for almost to the day four months later we lost him at Daytona but man I'm just telling if you wanted to have a perfect last five laps of a race to come that I mean you were talking 18th to first right right can't say enough good it was it was by far textbook school let me show you how it's done boys and that's exactly. what he did I'm what? telling you but I love Dale Earnhardt he was a good close friend of mine and I just I think about him a lot 20 years later I still think about him and you know just really impressive at Talladega so so many times this may be an unfair question but it's a question that invariably every driver every reporter that was of that era has always been asked so i'm going to ask it of you yeah if stale senior had not you know tragically died at uh, at daytona in 2021 february 18th of 2021 what where would he have gone i mean how much longer would he have driven could he have maybe won an eighth championship i mean i know we're talking about you know hyper or you know hypotheticals here and that kind of thing but you know could he have gone another three, four, or five years? Could he have won another championship to put him ahead of Petty? I mean, did, have you ever sat back and thought about what might have been with with uh, Dale Senior? I have, Jerry, and I honestly believe in my heart. Two thousand one, had he lived, he could have gotten the eighth title, because coming off of two thousand, that race and other races that year, there really were on top of his game. You know, he had hurt his neck really bad in that crash at Talladega. Right. They, you know, he kept putting it off, putting it off, putting it off and finally got it fixed at the beginning of 2000 before the race, before the season started. And then he was on top of his game again. He was acting 10 years younger. He was driving well. And then he uh, and then it was sort of like being on the mountaintop in 2000 at Talladega. He was prepared to win 2001. And then I know from a really good source that 2003 was going to be it for him. And he was going to retire in 2003. And Jeff Burton was going to be his pick to get in the three car. Really? I did not know that. Yeah. Wow. It was, that was pretty well etched in stone. And then when he passed away in 2001, that plan went away. But yeah, Jeff Burton was his choice. That, that was sort of going to be the plan of the future for the three car. And and because they were already putting some things into the works he was going to win that eighth title he hoped in 2001 go through 2002 maybe a you know a victory tour kind of thing in 2002 was my understanding and then put jeff in the car in 2003 and then move into dei and start running it and it, it didn't materialize wow wow yeah i'll tell you ben i mean you know, this is only my second show with you, but I mean, I am just enthralled. I mean, I, I talk a lot, but I mean, I, I, I want to shut up and just listen to you because you have just, you get, you tell some of the the best stories I've ever heard. And I've learned so much from you just in two episodes along, alone. And I, you know, I, as we continue on week after week after week, I'm going to learn even more. And, you know, today has been a special uh, show because it's just, you know, it's, we're talking about Talladega and, you know, you, uh, you can say whatever you want about other tracks, maybe other than Daytona, I mean, to be fair, but other than Daytona, I mean, there's really no other track that really stands out in my mind than Talladega. I mean, Daytona and Talladega, you know, they're like, you know, one, two, if you will, or two, one, however way you want to rank them. But, you know, the, the storylines we get out of Talladega, the history we've gotten out of Talladega, the drivers who've run there, the strange things that have happened there, the, you know, the good things, the bad things, the crashes, the big ones, you know, all that stuff. You know, it just, it's, it's part of the fabric of NASCAR. It's part of the fabric of Talladega. And I, I've just so enjoyed talking to you about this today. So, uh, but I'll, I'll tell you, we, 
we've got it. We've got a, a, another, we've got a, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? We've got a, um, uh, uh, an even bigger mountain, if you will, to climb next week, because we talk about Talladega being a wild card. Well, what's going to be the last race of round two, another wild card, the Roval at Charlotte Motor Speedway. Look forward to talking to you about that as well, too. Oh, it's a joy uh, having you with uh, part of the podcast and we have a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward to it. All right, Ben, listen, you have a good week and, uh, Kevin Harvick, it's your your yeah, time to win, or maybe Michael McDowell. It could be anybody. I mean, that's what I like about Talladega. I mean, it just everybody's so equal there. So, Ben, thank you ever so much for uh, today's episode of A Lifetime in NASCAR, and we'll catch all the listeners next week right here on A Lifetime in NASCAR. Take care, everyone. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.